Amen. Well, it would be my joy if you would join me into, in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I don't know about you, but when I sing that last song, I feel like I just want to lose my voice there at the end. I come rejoice, oh my soul, that Christ is our treasure forevermore. This morning we read this story and maybe Christ is not always our treasure. Maybe there's days that we miss that Jesus is the greatest treasure in the world. But in this passage, I'm encouraged because the disciples miss it too. That The disciples oftentimes, even the night that Jesus was about to be betrayed and go to the cross, even that night, the disciples are missing it. And so that's encouragement to us that God is abundantly patient and gracious, even when, when with us. So we read this in Luke chapter 22. It says this, starting in verse 24, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray together. Lord, we we ask, Father, that you would help us this morning. That you would give us ears to hear from you. That you would give us eyes to see, eyes to see the glory, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning for believers, for unbelievers, Lord, for for all that have gathered here today, Lord, that we would not miss Jesus. Lord, that's the greatest tragedy, the greatest devastation in the world is walking through this life and missing Jesus. So, Lord, would you do your work that we might see him? Would your word be clear so that we might see him? Would your spirit speak to our hearts in power that we might see him and treasure him above all? That we might say that he is our treasure forevermore. Lord, would you do this for your great glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He wasn't reading the room very well. You ever said that before about someone in a situation, you know what? He really wasn't reading the room. 
Maybe it was something that someone said that's just something odd. He did something kind of strange, something that didn't fit the context he was in. He just didn't fit. He just didn't read the room. It sounds like an office episode in Michael Scott, right? Just every moment just doesn't read the room. Maybe it's someone at a funeral visitation and they come in and they think that that's the best time in the receiving line to tell the funniest story, funniest thing that happened to them that week. Maybe it's a business meeting and some guy is just talking way too much and not listening at all and he's just not reading the room. Maybe it's someone visiting someone in the hospital and they open their mouth and they say something and you're sitting there thinking, why in the world would they have said that? Maybe you've done this before, like me. You're completely unaware in the moment. I think that's the reason that God gives us spouses, especially us Men, where in those moments you're talking, you're saying something, and you look over and your wife's eyes are getting massively big, like, (laughs) what are you thinking? Learning to read a room is an important skill that you must learn to engage with people. Not reading a room can have a, a devastating impact. In a serious situation, it can have a negative effect on the relationship, even the closest relationships in your life. When we open up our passage this morning, the disciples could not read the room the night of the Last Supper. They could not read the room because here's Jesus He's earnestly desired and joyfully gathered all his disciples together to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is talking about the humble road that lies ahead for him, that he's about to give his very body, he's about to give his blood for them. And Jesus has just revealed that one of his followers... One of his friends in the room sitting at the table is about to betray him. So so if we were sitting in that room in that moment, there would be some joy from the Passover, but there would also be a weighty moment. A sobering reality that Jesus is about to give his life and one of us is about to betray him. Yet the disciples miss it. That they can't read the room. They don't grasp the gravity of what's about to happen to Jesus. They don't grasp the gravity of the cross. As one commentator stated, one cannot think of a more inappropriate time for the disciples to bicker about, to bicker over who is the greatest. The most inappropriate time to bicker about who is the greatest. But we need to hear this this morning that to to fail to miss a moment could be terrible for us in our lives. But for us to miss the kingdom would be tragic. To not grasp a situation can be very embarrassing. But to not grasp Jesus, to not grasp the gospel would be eternally devastating for you. 
So my prayer this morning as we walk through this passage is that we would see ourselves and the disciples. We would see how we too often miss the kingdom, how we too often miss Jesus. But by the power of the Spirit that we would grasp with joy all that God has given to you in His Son. All that God has given to you in the gospel in Jesus Christ. The first way that we misunderstand and that Jesus helps us is that we want to be great. But Jesus says, be a servant. We want to be great. Jesus says, be a servant. Again, it's an untimely, inappropriate dispute that begins among the disciples in the upper room. An an argument. An argument. They're arguing, bickering about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to have the best seat in the house? Or at least, who's going to be thought of as the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to have the most prominent place? Who will receive the most attention? Who will be exalted? Who will be known or celebrated? Who will be the most impressive of the disciples? Jesus says, this sounds a lot like the Gentiles. This sounds a lot like the world. This sounds a lot like people that do not know God. The kings of the world, he says, the kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship. They abuse authority. They want to be served by others and celebrated by others. And the people underneath them, they're called the benefactors. They love having all the perks and all the privileges of being close to the king, close to the top. We see this in the world around us, don't we? I mean, we can turn on the news and see people who are hungry for attention, hungry for power. We can look at our workplaces and are in our relationships, and we see this around us. But sadly, this is even seen in the church, where leaders take advantage of people. Where leaders, Christian leaders, use people to serve themselves. Even more sadly, use Jesus to serve themselves. And there are people close to them wanting to benefit from them, from their proximity to power, and it's so sad. But listen to what Jesus says clearly to his church, to us. Listen to what he says definitively to his disciples. He says, verse 26, but not so with you. Shouldn't be that way with you, brother and sister in Christ. You should be different. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you should have a different desire than the world. You, the, the church of Jesus Christ, Christ fellowship, we should have a different standard. And this morning, Jesus wants to redefine for our minds and, and even rearrange in our hearts what true greatness looks like. Jesus says, your heart Your heart says it wants to move up, but Jesus says you have to get low. Your heart says you want to move up, but Jesus says you have to get low. 
And he says this in verse 26. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. You know, in that society, even in our society, the youngest in the community would have been the least thought of. Would have been the least important. They were the people who were yet to have a voice. They, they were the last to have an opinion, or at least, at least to be asked to have an opinion. They would have been the forgotten ones. But Jesus says true greatness is fine with not being important. It's fine with being forgotten. True greatness is fine with being the least. He says also in verse 26, and the leader as one who serves. The lowest person in the household, the, the lowest person in the community would have been the servant, would have been the slave in the household. So even in the upper room that night, the lowest person in the room on that night would have been the person who was preparing the food. Or even lower than that, it would have been the person who was washing feet. The, the person that would have been washing their feet in the room. Jesus says true greatness is okay with not being the highest. True greatness is fine with not being exalted or lifted up. It's fine with being the lowest Listen, church, do you desire to be the lowest? Are you fine with being the least important? Are you fine with being the last one noticed? This is not our hearts often, is it? This is, this is not me often. We want to be known. We want to be first. We want to be noticed. We want to be celebrated. We want to be thought well of, to be impressive to people. We want people to, to look at us. We want people to think we're great, at least greater than others. Jesus asked his disciples in verse 27, he asked them a question. He says, for who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one, he says, who reclines at table? That's so easy, right? I mean, we hear that question from Jesus, and we're like, this is not a hard question. Does it even need to be answered, Jesus? Of course, it's the one reclining at the table. Of course, it's the person in the place of honor being served by other people. That's how the disciples would have defined greatness. And that's how our heart defines greatness. It's being waited on. It's being served by others. It's being made much of, being adored and treated like a king. We look at that and think, if someone would treat me like a king, I'll feel like I would be the greatest person. Come fan me and come feed me grapes and I'd be the greatest person in all the world. Yet, Jesus turns greatness upside down in his kingdom. When the king of kings and the Lord of lords in verse 27 says this, but I am among you 
as the one who serves. But I am among you as the one who serves. You think it's the one reclining at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. He says this, the king says this in Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for the many. Or, or Jesus really disrupts our hearts when we read this account of what happened in the upper room in John chapter 13. Because this is what we read in John chapter 13. This will disrupt, rearrange your heart if you hear what happens in John chapter 13. It says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So listen, Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows who he is. He knows the power that he has. But the next verse says this. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus, with great joy, made himself the lowest person in the room. Literally the lowest person in the room by washing his disciples' feet. Jesus, with great joy, Philippians 2 says, with great joy, emptied himself. With great joy, became a servant. With great joy, Joy made himself nothing with with real joy, humbled himself as the least and the last on the cross for your sins in your place. Listen, on the cross, Jesus was not just forgiving your sin. He was redefining greatness for us. True Christians see true greatness as not being served, but being a servant. Is that you this morning? Is that your heart this morning? If it's not in your heart, just pray, Lord, rip away my self-interest. My desire to be known, my desire to be noticed, to be made much of. Because true Christians, we don't, we don't jockey for position. We don't lust for attention. We, don't, we, we are fine with being last, fine with being forgotten, fine with being the least, because that's the place where we find Jesus. That's the place that we get to be with Jesus. When we're last and we're least and we're a servant and we're, with no, we're nothing, we are with our Savior. So we want to be great. But Jesus says, be a servant. Second thing we see is we want the kingdom now. Jesus promises the kingdom later. The disciples, again, they're thinking about greatness. You can hear their train of thought. They're thinking about greatness, obsessing about the coming kingdom. However, they are not reading the room. They're missing the direction of Jesus. 
I mean, just think about it. Jesus is getting so close to the cross, and yet the disciples' hearts are heading the opposite direction. While Jesus is feeling the, the looming weight of the cross, they're lusting after wearing a crown. They're talking about greatness and their kingdom. But to be honest, we're not much different than the disciples. Let's be honest. None of us are as far from the prosperity gospel as we think we are. Don't fool your heart. You're not as far from the prosperity gospel as you think you are. See, the prosperity gospel is all about how God wants to bless you with, with health and with wealth and with success and with pleasure on, in this life. Maybe our version is the, the positivity gospel. The positivity gospel that we want to be happy and we want to be comfortable and we want to be at ease. It's a little turned down, a toned down version of the prosperity gospel, but, but we long for happiness. We want to be comfortable. We never want to be inconvenienced. We never want to be interrupted. We, we don't want to ever feel down. We, we want our lives to feel like our Instagram looks. We want our best life now. We don't want to wait for later. Jesus coming back seems more like a bummer than it does a joy to us. As a pastor, Eric Reed says, he says this, most of us have chosen heaven over hell. Not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. I'll say that again. Most of us have chosen heaven over hell. Not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. And Jesus makes, in this passage, makes no promises this, this life will be full of happiness now. No, no promises that you're going to be comfortable here. No promises that you're going to be at ease now, in fact, he says, being a disciple, this is what it looks like. If you want to come and follow me, you must deny yourself and take up a cross. A cross that Jesus was going to be crucified on. Take up a cross and follow me. In fact, Jesus just said, you have stayed with me in my trials. And he's not making any promises that those trials are going to end anytime soon. I mean, messaging with one of our workers who were on the field, who were near the devastating earthquake this week. And I just said, how are you doing? How is your heart? I know that your house is fine. I know you are still alive, but how's your heart? And he said, I'm just trying to keep it together. In fact, when I'm alone, I can't quit crying. We have no promise, brother and sister, that, that our kingdom will be now, that happiness will be now, that comfort and ease will be now. But church, Jesus does promise a kingdom later. A prosperous kingdom that makes this, this world look like the slums. Listen to what he says in verse 29 and 30. He says, I sign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's an astounding claim. A remarkable claim that Jesus says that the Messiah's table is my table. That that's my kingdom. That's an astounding claim that Jesus is saying. And it should take our minds and hearts to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, verse 25, this is what we read starting in verse 6. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Yes, Jesus is making this astounding claim that when you look at Isaiah, this is my table. This is my table in my kingdom. But do you want to hear something more remarkable than that? More overwhelming than that? More shock, shocking for sinners like you and me? Because in the same time, in the same voice, Jesus says this, you will be sitting with me there. You will be with me there. You will be feasting with me. You will be with me at my table with no more death, with no more sorrows, with, with no more tears, with no more sins, with no more earthquake, rejoicing forever with me. For all those who will turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus alone. For all those who will bow their knee to the King of Kings, to this Messiah, you will be there with him. You will be there with him. Brothers and sisters, grasp that reality. Feel that truth that's true for you if you are in Christ. Overwhelming joy overwhelming comfort that you are longing for, ease that you are living for right now, overwhelming joy is coming for you later. The question is, are you patiently waiting now? Are you trying to find a home in this world now? Or are you patiently and humbly waiting for the kingdom that is to come? Where Jesus says, you will be at my table feasting with me. The final thing we see is that we want self-confidence. But Jesus gives us confidence in him. The tone of Jesus is full of grace in this passage. 
If you listen to the tone of his words, he's not getting impatient with them. He's not getting fed up, even though they're slow to read the room. No, he's full of grace, full of compassion, full of patience for disciples like us. You can hear it in his voice when he says this, Simon, Simon. Just the repetition is a display of his love and affection. Simon, Simon. It's the same way in Luke chapter 10 when he said, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Listen, he's not impatient with Martha. Martha. He's not condemning Martha. No, he's calling her to the one thing, to the best thing. He's calling her to himself. In the same way, he says, Simon, Simon. Satan is coming for you to sift you like wheat. It's actually, in the Greek, it's actually in verse 31, plural. And it switches over in the next verse to singular. So he's literally saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. He's coming for all the disciples. But then it says, but I prayed for you, singular. I pray for you that your faith, Simon, may not fail. When you ha- and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's response, what is it? What's going on in Peter's heart in the moment? Well, it's one of self-confidence. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to death. Whatever's Facing us, Jesus, I will be with you. Maybe this sounds like you sometimes. So confident in yourself. So sure of yourself. So sure of your faith. In fact, if you turn to Matthew 26, you know what it says? Peter Peter in Matthew 26 says it this way. The Though, I, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Those are some strong words. I will never. Talk, talk about self-confidence and self-sufficiency. Talk about being self-deceived when we think that I will never. But notice Jesus' confidence is not in Peter. Jesus' confidence is in Jesus. Jesus' confidence is in himself. You hear it in his voice. He's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan is coming after you. Coming after you. He's like a roaring lion who's seeking someone to devour. But Peter, you're strong enough. Nope, he doesn't say that. But Peter, I know that you're the greatest disciple. You're the rock. Upon this rock, I built my church. You will never fall away. No, Satan is coming for you, Peter. But verse 32 says, But I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Listen, Jesus is not minimizing the power of Satan. He's not minimizing temptation. No, he's magnifying his own power. He's magnifying who he is and what he can do for his people. Listen, anytime you add more self to anything, you're slowly moving away from the gospel. You're slowly moving away from Jesus. I mean, think about it. Self-confidence. Self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness. I'm good enough in and of myself. Add more self, and you're going to move and lose lose more of Jesus. So anything in your heart that sounds like, I can do it. Or, or I'm enough, or I'm good enough, or I've got it all together. If any part of your words sound like that, if any part of your heart feels like that, you are slowly moving away from Jesus. You're slowly feeling like that somehow you can be enough instead of seeing that Jesus is enough. Notice Next, that Jesus says, and when you have turned again, when you repent, strengthen your brothers. Notice it's not if Peter repents. It's when he repents, he should strengthen his brothers. It's not if he repents. It's when he repents. That's so important. Listen, it's not that Christians never sin. It's that Christians always repent. Always return back to Jesus. They will repent because Romans 8 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God right now interceding for you. Jesus right now is in heaven at the right hand of God. And what he's doing is praying for you. The the only reason you will persevere to the end is because Jesus is praying that your faith will not fail. That's the only reason. That's the only hope that you'll make it to the end. It's not because of you. It's because Jesus is praying for you. That means the only way that you won't make it to the end is if Jesus quits remembering and quits praying for those he loves. And here's the good news, church. He'll never do that. He can never forget you. He will never forsake you. He will always bring you before the Father in prayer. So listen, this is not self-confidence in your faith. This is Christ's confidence in his prayers for me. It's not self-confidence in us. It's Christ's confidence in him. This is when I fear my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When it seems like the tempter will prevail over me, Christ is the one who will hold me fast. 
You know, if we read the news or you read blogs or Twitter, you see all the time that there are so many fallen pastors, so many professed Christian leaders who live their lives, it seems, hiding their sin and and walking in unrepentance. And how do we respond to that? I mean, what do you do when you see these stories of people that look like they're giving in to sin, who profess Jesus, but don't act like they're following Jesus? Well, the self-confident person looks at that and says, how could they? But the Christ-confident says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, intercede for me on my behalf. Lord, pray for me. Lord, keep me till the end. This should give us so much confidence this morning. This should give you so much confidence for tomorrow. Not because we have great faith that we will make it to the end, but because we have a great Savior. We have a great Savior who not only died to take away our sins, but He lives right now in this very second, keeping us to the end, praying for us to the end, never letting you go. You know, this morning, the greatest obstacle to you seeing Jesus, the greatest reason that you will miss Jesus today is yourself. It's yourself. If you go through this life wanting to be great, lusting for attention, wanting to be first, wanting to be served, you will miss Jesus. If you go through this life wanting this place, wanting this world to be your heaven, to be your home, you will miss Jesus. If you go through this life confident in yourself, confident trusting in yourself instead of casting all your hope and collapsing all your hope on Jesus, you will miss Jesus. But brothers and sisters, you don't want to miss Jesus. You don't want to miss Jesus. Because Jesus is the only Savior who died for your sins. Jesus is the only Savior who rose again. Jesus is the only one who ascended to heaven where he lives right now, keeping you till the end. Jesus is the only Savior who will one day come again. And who will say, pull up a chair in my kingdom where you will feast with no more sin, no more sorrow, with no more death, but forever full of joy with him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that by your grace and for your glory, Lord, that you would help us see Jesus that you would draw our eyes away from wanting to be great, that we might see Jesus. 
that you would draw our eyes away from this world, thinking this could be our heaven, Lord, or that we would see Jesus. That you would draw our confidence away from ourselves, from trusting in ourselves and collapsing all our hopes in Jesus. Lord, I pray for every one of us this morning that we would turn from any distraction, from any idol, from any sin that's deceiving our hearts and that we would cast all our hope on the only Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose for us and who is living right now, keeping us to the end reigning over all things, but even more reigning over our hearts until the day that we see his face. Lord, help us see and savor Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.